This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blah! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso lemon scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get hefty, ultra-strong with new Fabuloso lemon scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by ExpressVPN. If you want to get the most out of your streaming services, ExpressVPN is a no-brainer. Visit our special link right now, expressvpn.com slash missionlog, and you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show, watch what you want, and protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash missionlog. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 506, Revulsion. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we test ourselves to see if we can stand the disgusting, organic visage of each other, all while watching an episode of Star Trek and then reporting back to you with the morals, meanings, and messages therein. This week, Revulsion, the one where the hologram meets a hologram. The one we know with a pretty nice guy, but the other one is no fun at all. Meanwhile, on Voyager, Harry Kim has a few lessons to learn about fraternizing with the crew. I'll be back with trivia shortly, but first, here's Norman with a few notes on how to contact us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on X, formerly known as Twitter, and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember, your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now, here's hoping that John Champion will not revolt all of you with this week's trivia. <laughs> I may be uh, repulsive, but hopefully not revolting. Uh, let's talk about trivia this week's episode, Revulsion. It is a story written by Lisa Klink. And here we have executive story editor Lisa again with a script under her name. The most recent of hers that we discussed where she got the sole credit was Displaced in season three. You might remember that one where the Voyager crew was getting displaced you know, by a bunch of aliens with a giant menagerie ship. This episode was directed by Kenneth Biller, and that name should also be super familiar to you as a writer and co-producer of Voyager. And just like a lot of the actors did, Ken took the opportunity of being on the Voyager crew to learn a thing or two about directing. This is his very first ever credit as a director, and he did direct one more on Voyager, but he has been bouncing around between writer, producer, director credits ever since. He sat in the big chair for episodes of Dark Angel, Smallville, Perception, and as recently as 2022, an episode of The Cleaning Lady. 
And it is interesting to note that season four of Voyager, the early part anyway, had been hit with a number of schedule changes in production and air date order. This episode was originally planned as number six, but at the last minute it was switched with The Raven and filmed and aired in that order. Let's meet our guest stars. Well, we really have just the one. Okay, there are some corpses on the alien ship, but we're here for the isomorphic life form, a.k.a. hologram, named Dejarin. He is played by Leland Orser. The name should be familiar to you. We have seen Leland twice before on Star Trek. Both of those appearances were on DS9 as two different characters. First, he was one of the refugees in the episode Sanctuary, and then we saw him as a Romulan in The Die is Cast. He is probably best known for feature film work, though, and you have likely seen him in some big titles. Taken, Seven, Escape from L.A., Alien Resurrection, just to name a few. Then there was Steven Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan, which is important in the timeline of today's episode. Leland was cast in that film and had to get to London very quickly to start shooting. He was already booked on a TV gig, though, and it was only because the producers promised him that they could get all of his scenes done in four days and then let him go that he agreed to do it. Because after all, it's very hard to turn down Star Trek. So he got to appear on Voyager and made it out in time for the World War II epic. And we will see Leland one more time in an episode of Enterprise. Welcome to the Delta Quadrant. You might want to play Please Hammer. Don't hurt him. Really loud on this away mission. Prologue. On a deserted ship, a man's slumped body is dragged away from a bulkhead, revealing a bloody splatter behind his head. After hiding the body and in the midst of cleaning the drying bloodstains, the second man starts to shimmer as if he was caught in a malfunctioning transporter beam. He immediately activates a nearby console and sounds out a hail, identifying himself as an HD25 isomorphic projection and begging for help because there has been an accident and his crew is dead. Act 1. A promotion ceremony and a bit of a celebrity roast for Tuvok is taking place aboard the USS Voyager. Tom Paris and Harry Kim regale the dinner party with recounting a joke they once played on Tuvok involving both his security console and the replicator in his quarters playing the phrase, live long and prosper when activated. Janeway describes how Tuvok reprimanded her in front of three admirals for violating proper tactical protocol during her first command. Sure, he hurt her ego, but she also says that he was right. She congratulates him, saying that she has come to rely on his wise and consistently sensible counsel. In his typical Tuvok stoicism, he thanks the captain and assures everyone present of his continuous devotion to the best of his ability. Tom chases down Balana, who is leaving the festivities. He's frustrated that they haven't spoken in three days, especially after she confessed that she loved him. Balana doesn't expect Tom to feel the same way, but instead he abruptly, yet passionately, kisses her to make his point. Sadly, their stolen moment was awkwardly interrupted by the doctor, who presses Tom into service as his new medical assistant. Back in the mess hall, Neelix is given his first ambassadorial assignment by Janeway to serve as Voyager's liaison to the Arithians. Chakotay assigns Harry to update the Astrometrics lab along with Seven of Nine. Harry groans the task, but does as he's told. 
The party officially ends when the doctor and Janeway are called to the bridge doing an emergency distress call. They are both shocked to discover that it is a hologram, rather an isomorphic projection, that has required assistance. The doctor convinces Janeway to let him investigate this matter further, as he thinks they are kindred in a way. He also suggests that Bellana should accompany him since she is the expert on the doctor's mobile emitter. Janeway approves and expects to rendezvous with them as Voyager continues onward to meet with the Erythians. Meanwhile, Harry meets with Seven in Cargo Bay 2 and informs her of their new work assignment together. And working with Seven has made Harry a bit on edge. Maybe it's because their last encounter ended up with her knocking him unconscious. On their way to aid H2D5, the doctor strikes a nerve while discussing Bellana's relationship with Tom Paris. She spared further aggravation by arriving at H2D5's derelict ship. After beaming aboard, they try to triage the situation as the isomorph stalks them from behind with a hammer in hand, which clangs on the ground after the hologram dematerialized, then reappears on the side of the main console across from Bellana and the doctor. Act 2. Dajaran introduces himself and is surprised to encounter a fellow hologram alongside an organic. Balana notices that Dajaran is still flickering and asks to take a look at Dajaran's holographic projectors. He protests but directs her to system control. The doctor insists on getting more information about how Dajaran's predicament developed. He said that eight months had passed since his ship left their home planet of Soros. The other organics on board were eliminated by a deadly virus that infected two crew members while they were on a survey mission. This is why the ship's systems are in disrepair, including Dejaran's hollow projectors, which he tells Bellana are in a radiation-flooded deck, and she will have to make do with an alternative control panel. On Voyager, Harry and Seven continue working on their upgrades to the Astrometrics Laboratory. Seven completes her tasks with Borg-like efficiency, but with minor errors nonetheless, as Harry's tricorder readings confirm. Seven blames her humanity for errors in her work product, which seem to be a recurring blind spot for her, as Harry aggressively pulls her away from handing a live power coupling, which Seven believes her Borg exoskeleton can handle. However, after grabbing Seven, Harry once again finds himself feeling socially awkward towards her. Bellana continues working on fixing Dejaran's hollow matrix back on the abandoned ship, while the doctor briefly explains how his mobile emitter has given him the freedom to exist in ways never imagined, and how he has grown to be a respected member of the Voyager crew, concepts that Dejaran cannot begin to comprehend. Dejaran only mutters that his programmers would never permit it when the doctor offers that he also can lead a similar and fulfilling life. Dejaran suddenly notices a bloodstain near the doctor's medical case and begins wiping down the console underneath, nervously explaining away his strange urges for cleanliness. Later, Dejaran startles Bellana with a tray of food, hoping to provide her a quick respite from her work. After almost stepping on a high-voltage power conduit, Dejaran launches into an unsettling diatribe about how organics are hypocritical and filthy, how he's ashamed to even look like them. But he quickly apologizes and explains that his frustrations were not meant towards her specifically. Act 3. After leaving Dejarn's rant, Bellana warns the doctor about what she just encountered. She believes that Dejarn is psychotic, unstable, and she wants to be able to disconnect his program as a safety precaution. She also tells the doctor that her tricorder scans detect nothing wrong with the supposedly irradiated lower deck of the ship. The doctor is troubled by Bellana's concerns but gives Dejarin the benefit of the doubt, suggesting that his actions might be a result of the isolationism he's suffered. The doctor also compares Dejarin's caustic personality to how he was once after he was originally brought online. 
they have to table their discussion because Dejarin appears suddenly, which Balana uses as her excuse to leave and check his emitter controls again, and perhaps the lower deck as well. Dejarin, however, is more excited to show the doctor his holographic fish, a pet that he had to hide from his disapproving organics. Back on Voyager, Seven accidentally slashes her palm severely while she and Harry were physically extracting a data node containing Borg navigational information, only reinforcing Seven's belief that her now mortal and human body is ineffective and weak. Harry takes her straight to sickbay, where newly minted nurse Tom Paris treats Seven's wound. After she leaves, Harry criticizes Tom for being unprofessional towards a clearly upset Seven, and Tom can't help but observe that Harry has grown more than a bit fond of his Borg colleague. Harry is at a loss for words and can't help but concede that Tom isn't altogether mistaken. Act 4 While the Doctor tries to educate Dejarn about system controls for maintaining a properly running ship, Bellana investigates the lower deck for his primary holomatrix controls so that she may turn him off if needed. To her horror, she suddenly discovers more than she bargained for. Behind the doors of a seemingly innocuous control room, Balana finds the hidden remains of Dejarin's crew, who by the nature of their beaten and bloodied state, weren't killed by a fatal infection. Meanwhile, Dejarin tries to convince the Doctor to abandon Voyager and join him because as holograms, they are both superior to organics in every possible way, and that they are not just tools to be used at the whim of their lesser organic beings. Convinced by the Doctor that there is a better way to exist as a hologram, Dejarin refuses to relinquish control of his ship to possible future organic crews. Knowing that Dejarin is becoming increasingly agitated, the Doctor tries to reason with him by pointing out that because they are technical entities, they require upkeep that can only be provided by organics. Dejarin screams that this is wrong because they are the higher form of life, rather than the organics because they do not require food or suffer from disease. Suddenly, Dejarn's newest tirade is interrupted by the blaring of an alarm. He knows that Bellana has discovered his control matrix and the room where he has hidden the bodies of his murdered crew. Dejarn dematerializes to confront Bellana, and the doctor gives chase on foot. When Dejarn appears before her, Bellana tries to fend him off, but not only does he phase through her attack, but he also phases his hand through her chest towards her heart. Bellana is at the mercy of the homicidal isomorph and is losing consciousness, but before she collapses, she manages to shut off Dejarn's control matrix and he vanishes in a fit of rage as the doctor bursts through the doors only to find Bellana unconscious on the floor. Act 5. Back on Voyager, it's late and Harry is still working on the astrometric schematics when Seven reports to him as requested. Using the pretense of making their work relationship a bit more fun and casual, and in what Harry describes as the relaxing atmosphere of a dimly lit room, the well-intentioned ensign attempts to remove some of the cultural barriers between them, and offers to take her to the holodeck to watch the Katarin Moonrise simulation. However, Seven, albeit Borg, admits to having a strong grasp of Harry's behavior as being typical of a human male when attracted to a human female. Her reaction to his behavior is direct and pointed, lacking all the social pretense for which Harry was woefully unprepared. And finally, when she asks Harry to remove his clothes so they can fully explore her humanity through copulation, Harry recoils and suggests they remain friends. Seven agrees and leaves, while Harry reels in his chair, unsure if, if that exchange could have been any worse or more awkward. Meanwhile, on Dejarin's ship, the Doctor revives Balana and explains that Dejarin's phasic attack damaged her heart and they need to escape so she can be treated back on Voyager. 
They make their way back to the main control room above, but when the doctor sees Dejarin's fishbowl, he knows that Balana did not in fact turn off all the ship's holo emitters. Turning to see Dejarin with hammer in hand and a bloodied unconscious Balana slumped at his feet, the doctor confronts an enraged Dejarin and tries to reason with him one last time. However, Dejarin is beyond saving, and as the two try and strike at each other, their blows phase through each of them until Dejarin's attack damages the doctor's hollow emitter, causing him to deactivate. Dejarin then turns his attention towards Balana, who is groggy but still mobile. She evades several of his attacks and delays him long enough to lure him into an area where earlier she warned him about a power cable, which she fires up and shoves into Dejarin's chest, destabilizing his matrix, causing him to disappear forever. Balana reactivates the Doctor, and the two make their way back to the shuttle, to Voyager, where Harry reports to Chakotay that he and Seven have finished their assignment, with great efficiency and ahead of schedule. However, Harry believes that Seven can do without him for the next step of this project, and with a skilled engineering team instead. Harry admits that there is a level of discomfort working with Seven, and is a bit cagey about revealing why, but Chakotay tongue-in-cheek, believes that they can work out whatever problem they have for the benefit of Voyager's much-needed astrometrics lab. Finally, Bellana is given a clean bill of health by the doctor, and Tom hopes that this means that he and Bellana can still make good on their evening's plans, that is, if Bellana's heart can take it. The doctor is disgusted with Tom's disgusting human behavior and orders him to stay and rid sickbay of his human residue from every instrument that he's touched. Just kidding. And a little inside joke between the doctor and Balana. On the contrary, the doctor drops his hypospray and declares that sickbay can use a little more clutter and a little less sterility. The end. Nicely done, Norm. That is a lot to get through. Gotta say, you know, it's a short prologue, short teaser for this episode, but it's very intriguing. There's blood, there's murder, there's intrigue here. Thought I was watching DS9. It's I dark. Mean, it, it is dark. Like <laughs> literally and figuratively dark. Yeah. Bit of a surprise there. Okay. One of the things that kind of struck me funny, even though it's not a funny moment, what we've seen in like Star Trek and, and sci-fi up to this point, like in the 90s, do you really think that they would use or Dejarn would use a sponge to clean up bloodstains and a, and a rag to try and wipe it down? Because. Oh. Yeah, no, it's a good point. First of all, it definitely had to be a space sponge, but you'd think yes. that he'd have some other kind of space tool to do that. You know, I mean, you have dermal regenerators on board Voyager. He's got to have something. Right? And we've seen technology that scrapes like muck off yeah. of floors. So, right. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. A little bit strange that that would be his go-to. I mean, the guy can can program a fish, you know? Right. Surely he could clean up a little blood. Over on Voyager, everybody's having dinner, and I believe me, I, I did my typical thing. I, I would freeze frame. I would try to see what all is on those plates. I'm pretty sure that everybody at least had some green beans and olives for dinner. Mm-hmm. Pretty sure about that. I mean, that that is in and of itself a promotion feast for a king. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or Tuvok. If you don't, or, you don't know King isn't around, you got Tuvok. Yeah. Around the dinner table placement settings were these really cool looking blue and yellow translucent glasses. Why? Because they weren't all mm. blue. They weren't all yellow. It didn't matter if they were in front of one character or another. I thought they were trying to match them up with uniforms, but that oh. wasn't the case. So I'm yeah. wondering if like blue was 
alcoholic and yellow was non-alcoholic. Oh, interesting. I wonder about that. Yeah. I, I do like the tone that they're setting in, in this little ceremony here. Like, it's nice to see a promotion and a roast together. I, I thought that was well done. Showed a bit of camaraderie of the crew. And that was fun. A roast motion? Is that <laughs> roast it? motion. Yes. Right. Yes. I was hoping that you would bring this up in trivia, but since you didn't, I would love to drop a little trivia for you. Yes. If you don't mind. Yeah, please. Tuvok is being promoted from lieutenant to lieutenant commander. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that early in, say, season one, two, and right up until Cathexis and was that season three? Yeah. I think it. I think that he still had the lieutenant commander pips, which was a costuming mistake. Yep. He did. And yeah. that is one of those things that is just a mistake. You know, like our, our friends at STLV, they do the canon smoothing. Like, how do you get from one creative choice to another creative choice? But they always ignore mistakes because that's just mm-hmm. a mistake. But here we go. We, we, got, we got the right pips at last. Yeah. Do you think that the ranks were taken off of the credits so that they avoided oh. said mistakes in the future? Oh, interesting. I wonder about that. Yeah, that's not a bad way to go. I do like that after that dinner scene, we're acknowledging what just happened between Tom and Bellana. In fact, he only says it's been a few days or three days or something like that. I thought the shut up and the kiss, that's a bit cliche, but... Shut up and kiss me. I know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but at least we're acknowledging things that happened to these characters. And I also have to say, like, even though it's a contrivance, I'm glad that we revisit the whole idea of Tom being part of sickbay. I mean, that, that goes back to the very beginning. Mm-hmm. But here's something that struck me funny. So out of a crew complement of, you know, a fluctuating 155-ish, 160-ish crew, mm. so the only officer on board... That the doctor feels comfortable enough to like uh, promote another promotion yeah. to head nurse is their head pilot. Yeah. Because what if they get into like a major fight, like a catastrophic battle, and they need their ace pilot to pilot them out of there, but they also need someone to help the doctor triage patients. What do you do? Well, exactly. That, I think they need like a good half dozen or so people who are trained in all of those medical facilities. You yeah. would think. No question about it. We also reestablish, confirm here that Neelix is the ambassador. That, that's kind of cool. And what I like about this very short scene here in Act 1 is that we're, we're moving all the pieces around on the chessboard in this episode. We're getting characters into new positions and duties, kind of confirming who they are, where they should be. Like that, That's all kind of nice. It, it's mm-hmm. like even if you haven't been paying attention much <laughs> into what's been going on in Voyager up until now, this just establishes like, yeah, here's who they are. Here's what they do. Somebody got a promotion. Somebody's taking on a new duty. That all works very well. And I thought the dialogue at the top with Seven and Harry was really nice because it it plays well into his unease and her pronounced differences with everyone else on board. I, Mm -hmm. I thought that that also kind of set the tone very well here. And I love when we're back on the alien ship, just playing up the creepy factor right away. I'll have notes about that when we get to our uh, our wrap up, and uh, and even going into the next act, I-, I love that they just keep elevating the creepiness of the isomorph. Like there is no question, no doubt. It's not like we're setting up a mystery here at all. No, no, no. He's just a homicidal hologram. Yeah, you're not like waiting for the you know the jump scare to happen. You know, as soon mm-hmm. as he 
jumps for, or materializes out of nowhere. It's like, hi, I'm right. holding a hammer. I'm not holding a hammer. Now I'm, you know, in front of you. So, yep. yeah, I'm, I'm glad that they didn't go that route with this mm-hmm. because it would have been a little too tropish. Here's the thing, though. The way I took it, I don't know if you saw it the same way or our audience. I don't know if you saw it the same way, but H2N5, the isometric hologram, right? Yeah. He has kind of like a goldish tone. And he did say that he's ashamed to be be made in the in the fashion and look of his organic masters. So right. is that what they look like? Do they look like him? I mean, judging by the corpses that we saw, yes. Uh, we didn't get a really good look at like detail. I mean, what was interesting about H2N5 Dejarin, and by the way, I'm going to screw up that name throughout this episode. I apologize right up front. I kept reading it as Darjeeling, uh, so <laughs> so maybe I had tea on my mind, but uh, Dejarin, it is. What? That reminds me of something. So the hologram is Darjeeling, yeah. but the emitter is from a... An engineering bay in Tibet. Uh, Right, right. But but if you know that reference, man, if you know that reference. But he had this like gold stripe around his hair. And I I was trying to see what specific things about him were like the organic crew members on board that ship. But we didn't really get a lot of look at them. So, yeah, he looks just like them, but with a different color, you know different color makeup i thought interesting you know we still refer back to this thing that the doctor does not have a name he, yeah. he just he just doesn't going back to um gosh now you're now i'm thinking darjeeling gosh darn you <laughs> see it'll, it'll <laughs> happen yeah it'll screw us both up the jarn's makeup is metallic goldish kind of like data or lore yeah you know, before right. right but it it seems to be rubbing off on leland's kind of like upper neck chest area Right where kind of like the the plunge line of his tunic, uh, yeah. like meets his collarbone. Yeah, that in and of itself kind of takes me out of the illusion that he's this particular hologram. Because yeah, is that supposed to be? I don't know. Like I said, is it supposed to be a thing with their alien race? Is it supposed to be something that he did for himself? Did he want to distinguish himself, or did they force that you know that difference on him? The organic yeah. masters, you know, his crew. So it just seemed to take me out, broke the fourth wall a little bit for me. Yeah. No, I I agree. And I, I think that might come up as a note later as well. Um, wow. Back on, I know, right. Uh, back on Voyager, I, I like the action in these scenes leading the character moments. Like, the, the, those have a nice fit, a nice organic fit. So the, the idea of seven finding equality and and finding some humanity by not being perfect you know it's by not having the right calculations and later on by injuring herself but also in these early scenes it really exposes this sadness about her existence like oh yeah i just sit here in this dark room by myself and contemplate my existence like that that is really tragic and more on that later i think as well with the parallels that we see between her and uh Dejarin. Nice little bit of uh, CG there, I thought, with the isomagnetic conduit. Also a bit of foreshadowing. Don't step on that. It's right. dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> when the doctor said to Dejarin, you've already exceeded the sum of your subroutines, is that like the hologram way of saying that you are more than the sum of your parts? I yeah. just thought it was like interestingly rewritten. 
Right, that way. right, and, and and who would know better than the EMH than, than our own doctor? I thought that was a, a nice little thing there. Weird line, you nibble like a fish <laughs> on this on this small charcuterie platter I made for you. So he's he's good at charcuterie, good mm-hmm. for him. And then uh, Dejarin has some really great phrases like biological cage that he mm-hmm. uses in his tirade. I mean, he makes some really interesting points. I think not all wrong. And by the way, biological cage. New band. I think that's going to be my uh, Rage Against the Machine cover band. I love it. Or, mm-hmm. you know, there's a, maybe it's a, a different cut of, was it Soundgarden's like Rusty Cage now? It's, you know, Biological Cage. Sure. So, yeah, that yeah it, could be, it could be a Smashing Pumpkins thing. You know, despite all my rage, I'm still just in a biological cage. Wow, so 90s. Your grunge, mm-hmm. your grunge trivia is epic. epic. <laughs> uh, speaking of epic, so the tirade that, uh, that the Jarn has in front of Balana, I mean, that literally is the personification of the title. I mean, yeah. that is some incredible acting. I hope Leland always uses that part as a clip for his portfolio for future, for future jobs. Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. I, I love how in those scenes, Belana keeps her cool. She's just taking all this verbal abuse, then cut to, she finds the doctor, we have a problem. <laughs> you yeah. know, N- nice to show her professionalism. And then, okay, we have to fix this now. And I thought those scenes with uh, the doctor's empathy about Dejaran very well placed. And I think leads thematically into partly what is very interesting about this episode. I agree. And it, the funny thing is that the smirk that the doctor has on his face when, you know, when Balana kind of disparages Dejaran, he's like, can you even hear like your biological entitlement right now? Because <laughs> yes. I hear it yes. all the time. I also like uh, you. You brought up, you know, uh, the doctor's empathy, and I, I, I kind of equate that to when Odo was defending Loss in Deep Space oh, Nine, yeah. where he just kept saying Loss didn't have the luxury of of being around all of you know you, my crew, my friends. You know, he was on his own. He was raised by different people. You know, his social uh, his social conformity is non-existent because he's not here. He's not amongst people. You know, he was yeah. isolated, and I'm like. That's an interesting take. It's an interesting parallel from these two shows. Yeah, yeah, I thought so too. And so uh, Dejarin has a fish, holographic yeah. fish. And uh, it, it's funny, the, the doctor is like, like, oh, you're so good at holographic design. And I thought, why does the doctor talk about, like, I had a whole holographic family once, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, oh, it's cute. You made a fish. I had a family with an obnoxious teenage son. Or, but I wonder, is he really the designer, or does Dejarin's computer work like the one on Voyager? He can just go to the computer and say, computer, make a fish. And then, look, he's got a fish. If you can materialize oneself as a hologram, mm-hmm. how is it hard to hide a fish from kind of like a disparaging crew? <laughs> just hit a button. You just, just hit a button. Then it goes right? away. Oh yeah. my gosh, you're going to find my fish. Disappear, fish. Flip. Yeah. Right. What are you doing in there, Dejarin? You're not... Playing with your holographic fish again, are you? Like, why? Why, why, I, I, why no. would that be a thing? <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah. Uh, back strange. to back to seven and Harry. Uh, her lines and and his. I've been damaged. I've become weak. And he says no more than the rest of us. Again, actually, a really good exchange between these two and reveals a lot about her character and uh, good effect there of the wound on Seven's hand closing up. I have to wonder if they did the old thing where they they just did the the makeup kind of the line that you see later and then CG'd on top of that so you can peel back the CG to reveal that layer. I thought that was cool. 
I, mean, I like the effect and I like the instrument that Tom was using. My question was when Tom said, oh, you know, you're lucky that didn't go like just a little bit deeper or else we'd have to go into surgery to fix your hand. I'm like, surgery? Like the doctor just created like Borg nanoprobes that were <laughs> able to like fend off species 8472. Yeah. You think they're going to go under the knife for fixing a nerve? Yeah, right. Does it just do that? Yeah. And, and by the way, I don't know how much more we'll get of this, but I feel like Harry and Tom constantly fail whatever the opposite <laughs> of the Bechdel test is, right? Because you, you get Harry and Tom in a room together, and what are they talking about? They're talking about women. They're talking about their love lives. Oh, these two. Yeah. They succeed at the Brochdel test. <laughs> Yep, there it is. Yep. Don't make fun of my new girlfriend, Tom. <laughs> By the way, are there Borg uh, women? I thought they were just Borg. There's no gender to Borg, right? It's just Borg. That's true. It's not like, I you know, Borg right. women, Borg men. It's like dwarves. There's only dwarves. I, I, know I dwarf think you're women. right. I think you're right. right. Yeah. Um, really interesting uh, how Dejaran sees Voyager as the doctor's prison. I thought mm-hmm. that was kind of cool. But, of course, huge difference that he has that, uh, that mobile emitter. That changes everything. I like Biological Cage, but I also came up with a band name when, mm. when, De, when Dejarin said Slovenly Carnal Pleasures. Oh. I kind of like that, too. Yeah. You know? Oh, that's great. Yeah. I'm sure that's also like the title of a 19th century book. Uh, that sounds great. Um, <laughs> I, good reveal with all the corpses. I thought there was some good horror tropes in here, some good uh, scary moments. Cautionary tale here, folks. Here's a warning. When someone says, quote, we're the higher form of life, mm. unquote, usually plans for genocide follow that revelation. Also see Magneto, mm-hmm. Alfred Bester, the Psychop from Babylon 5, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Yeah, good point. Good point. And, and I got to say, like, that, that is a really chilling, really disturbing scene. The, the whole idea that the isomorph can just push his hand into Bolana's chest and mess with her heart. Uh, you know, shades of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, but at least in that movie... You just go like, oh, but that, that's a real thing. That is physical matter forcing its way into physical matter. This is like creepy on a whole other level. You, you just, you can't stop it because he's a hologram. We have yeah, an opportunity for an ad placement here. The Isomorph 5000. He slices, he dices, <laughs> he defibrillates. But wait, there's more. So much more to him. So much more. Okay, look. We have arrived at a scene that we will discuss later. But um, Harry, late at night, calling in 7 of 9 to ostensibly work on the astrometrics lab. What is he trying to get to? in the scene the the lighting the awkward seduction what and by the way what about libby has not been mentioned in a very very long time i'm gonna have a lot more to say about that in the next segment i'm sure that you will too where is starfleet osha in the 24th century where's human resources thank you exactly And then, of course, the, the, the line, you know, unless you wish to change the nature of our affiliation, which Seven says to Harry. By the way, all Harry had to say there was, yes, I'd like to get to know you as a friend. Yeah. Could it, it, many, many other ways to go in that scene. But again, we will get to that later. I love the back and forth between Dejarin and the doctor. You're unstable. You're unstable. <laughs> like, was, the logic war. Oh no! Wait! Is oh, I'm sorry. That was Balana. That was Balana and Dejarin, not not yeah. the Doctor. But you know, great, <laughs> just great little verbal uh, uh, back and forth there. How does the Doctor's mobile emitter stay connected to him if the Doctor himself is phased 
in that particular holographic state. Oh, yeah, because they're point. because yeah. he and Dejaran are fighting, and yeah. their solid matter is phasing straight through them. It's kind of funny, right? But there is that one thing that sticks to the Doctor, regardless. Yep. And I don't know—is it what is it? Twenty ninth century technology 29th that we century attack? Yeah, there, I mean mm-hmm. that's twenty ninth yep. century Velcro. You can't argue with that. Yeah, and look again, legit some tense, scary moments as we reach the climax here with Dejaran attacking Balana, and I feel like uh, Balana electrocuting Dejaran a little bit like Bond electrocuting Oddjob and Goldfinger. Plus one for the Bond reference. You're welcome. You know I love it. Mm-hmm. But it was kind of okay horror movie tropish because you have the stalker, and yeah. in all horror movies, the stalker is ridiculous ridiculously smart and driven and sees the pitfalls in front of him except for that moment when you're like oh i completely forgot i can be killed by that thing that thing which was foreshadowed <laughs> way earlier yeah <laughs> oh yeah i you know what i wonder if they could have fixed that by having the doctor be the one to walk in on that thing first so we don't telegraph it to Dejaran. right only so Bolana earlier- would need to know that yeah, yeah. So earlier in the in the show, if the doctor had walked in and Balana said, "Hey, uh, watch your step. Don't get near that thing. It will destabilize our hollow matrix." Boom. Yeah. Problem Done. solved. Mm-hmm. Uh, man, I ooh, back to Harry again. We will have so much to say. I, I hate seeing Harry unable to be professional, and more than that, I think I hate that everybody seems to know about Harry unable to be professional and his thing with Seven. Or any date, really. Right, right. Any date. His entire personal life is is out there to be fodder for everybody else on Voyager. I mean, kind of uh, to continue this thought, when Tom says to Balana about their plans for the evening and he says, are you sure your heart can take it? I thought we were past this. I thought we were past those groaners. Yeah. And it just doesn't do anything for Tom's character where I thought he was kind of, he was touching and sweet earlier on and he was concerned about Bellana and their relationship. And then, but he just can't help himself. Can he? No, it, it's no. It, like, Oh, Hey, it's funny. You almost got your heart ripped out literally by a homicidal hologram. I'm going to make a joke about it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. but I tell you who can make a joke. Picardo absolutely bringing it at the end with that little psych out about his revulsion at the uh, organics in his sick bay. Great. And I love, uh, you know, the physical, the, the clutter by dropping the hypospray. The man knows his physical comedy too. Let me make sure I understand this. He's sending a distress signal because he wants more company or more victims. We'll get right back to revulsion after a word from this week's sponsor, ExpressVPN. So here's something, John, that I wanted to ask you. Ooh, ooh, ask me. Did you know you can watch old Star Trek episodes on Netflix? Hang on, Norman. Oh, you mean Star Trek, that that 57-plus-year-old franchise, that Star Trek, all of Star Trek? All of Star Trek. It's true. If you've ever tried to search Star Trek on Netflix and you came up short, mm-hmm. well, that's because Netflix actually has different shows depending on which country you're in. I think Stop. we know that. Oh. That's what I understand. But <laughs> with an app called ExpressVPN... We can change our online locations so we can control 
where we want our websites to think that we're located. Oh, okay. I like this plan. This is how it works. With a single click, ExpressVPN lets me and you and everybody listening choose from over a hundred different countries, which means then that there are thousands of extra shows that we can all enjoy from all over the world. Okay, let's talk about how easy this is. Norman, you and I both use ExpressVPN. You literally launch the app, choose a location, and hit connect. That's it. And actually, the second time you use it, you don't even need to change the location unless you want to. So you do that, and then you refresh whatever streaming service you're using. So in this case, if we're talking about Star Trek on Netflix, oh, let's say I want to navigate over to French Netflix. Very continental, very sophisticated. All right, how about all of TOS, all of Next Gen, uh, all of DS9, Voyager, Enterprise, they even have the animated series. And uh, do not write to us about whether or not that's canon, because it is. And it's not just Star Trek. As much as we love seeing all of Star Trek now available this way on Netflix, this works for thousands of TV shows and movies on any of your streamers. You're looking at Netflix or Disney Plus or the BBC iPlayer. I know you're a fan of that, John. Oh, well, hey, uh, speaking of BBC iPlayer, as this episode of Mission Log drops, there's another little uh, multi-decades old science fiction franchise celebrating a 60th anniversary. Yes, I'm looking at you, Doctor Who, and there is so much content coming out. Guess what? Fire up ExpressVPN, change that location to the UK, and then I am literally swimming in all of the Doctor Who content that I can handle. And what a way to spend the holidays. So if you want to get the most out of your streaming services, just like we do, ExpressVPN is a no-brainer. Visit our special link right now at expressvpn.com slash mission log, and you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. So support this show, watch what you want, and protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash mission log. Norman, I have a feeling that there will be a few uh, well-placed criticisms about this episode. There might be mm -hmm. some things that uh, rub us the wrong way that we need to address. But I want to kick things off talking about something that I really like here. Um, very often in Star Trek, you've got an A-plot and a B-plot that are so very separated, whether uh, physically, because it's just actions happening in different places, or thematically, and you wonder, like, okay, why, why are we even weaving these two things together? Why are we even spending time in one scene versus another? And maybe these could have been served as just singular episodes, right? Mm -hmm. We have action taking place on the alien derelict ship. We have action taking place on Voyager. And I actually, I love the fact that these are parallel stories happening. And they're, they're not necessarily bonk bonk on the head parallel stories. But what I like is the setup. You have two characters who are both different very pronounceably different from their respective crews. They are isolated. There are very few ways to relate. And those characters are filled with reminders about just how different they are. And 
that forces them into this kind of like underlying competition with them due to things like rank and function and just uh, uh, the social awareness that they're in. And both of these characters, Seven and Dejaran, have to find ways to deal with the situation that they're in. And they both actually have an advantage over the other character, uh, uh, advantages of strength and knowledge over their respective crews. But they still have to, to use this Borg word, they have to assimilate and integrate with that crew. But then what drives one of those to murder and the other one, Seven here, to try to assimilate and integrate with her crew? Now, I know that there is a much tighter parallel here to tell about the Doctor and Dejaran, which I also find really fascinating. I appreciate that the the Doctor tries to find common ground with Dejaran, and it makes us as an audience, I think, reasonably question how we treat an EMH <laughs> and ask if he's getting everything that he needs. I, I think that was one of the most interesting concepts to come from Voyager from the very beginning. It took somebody like Kess to raise her hand and go right to the captain and say, hey, you actually need to treat this doctor like a life form because mm-hmm. for all intents, he is. So I, w- we get that very much spelled out for us with the doctor and Dejaran, but I, I love that there is also that parallel with seven i feel that because the two parallel storylines are equally weighted Mm -hmm. that it's hard to really focus on which is the primary story the a story versus the b story Mm. i like to think that the dr dejarin balana story is the primary story just because i feel that we're continuing a character arc through line from the doctor that like you said we established earlier on when kess you know, vies for his agency mm-hmm. as a life form. And now the doctor himself is trying to encourage this obviously abused program to be better than how he has been shaped this entire time. I find that aspirational mm-hmm. for Dejaran, even though we know that it didn't work out. But where I find it not as successful with Harry and Seven, especially for Seven, is that Seven isn't really bouncing off uh, her, you know, her dilemma and the complexities of her being a human in a way where Harry provides her aspirational support. Mm. And I find that Mm -hmm. that it doesn't really do anything like through no action of Harry's. Does she learn really anything from his tutelage or from his management? Everything that she does or learns, she does really because she's very self-aware about how she's been changed. Yeah. So, you know, like even like her quote unquote off screen confession to Chakotay that she and Harry worked things out. Mm -hmm. She also admitted in the dining hall, in the mess hall, that she understands human behavior to the point where she knows and sees through Harry's guile at trying to seduce her in a way. Mm-hmm. So if she knows this about humanity and she knows that, you know, she has been thrust into the situation where she can identify all of these shortcomings before they happen or as they're happening, then what's she really learning? Dejarin doesn't know that. He doesn't know that there's a better life for him. He doesn't know that there's opportunity for him. The thing is that by the time he realizes it, it's already too late. Well, and, and that's the part. So we're going to get to the Harry and Seven thing, but that that's the part about Dejarin that I found really fascinating is 
obviously in a story set up like this, you have to have the doctor there as the 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 foil, the companion, the the guy. He, he serves so many roles in this. He's sort of the voice, the mentor, if you the will. mentor. You know? He's the voice of reason. Yeah. There are all these roles that he fills there, and his perspective and experience is so badly needed for a guy like Dejarin. And he absolutely has to have this level of sympathy and understanding for Dejarin. You have to ask yourself as the audience, and the EMH maybe if it is in a reflective moment, you know, what would have happened if the EMH didn't have the same opportunities on Voyage Voyager that he was given? If that right. crew is wiped out, and if the EMH is the only thing left on board that ship and another crew drops in let's say voyager was taken over by the kazon let's say mm -hmm. voyager was taken over by anybody else that would treat him without the respect and again this kind of at first grudging respect you know that, yep. that we had to actually make a concerted effort to bring him into the crew as an equal the emh has to look at that and go like oh that could have been me but like you said to jaren it, it's too late for him i think I think, because then mm -hmm. that was my other question, is what do you do with a being like Dejarin? Because mm -hmm. in this case, because of the story that we're telling here, that he is murderous, he is directly endangering the lives of Balana and the Doctor, and he has already killed six other living beings, in this story, he has to be disrupted. He has to be killed, right? Mm -hmm. but, but otherwise, what do you do? Could he be reprogrammed? Could this pathological part of his being be removed? But then that's a whole other ethical question. Would right. that be him if you did that? What, what, I, you think about Alex in A Clockwork Orange. You, you know, mm -hmm. I spread open, force-fed, uh, this reconditioning and then you ask yourself, is he still the same person? Have we done something worse by trying to strip him of these impulses that he has? So if you end up, or, or like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, you know, if you end up with right. a Jaren at the end who has been stripped of the things that make him him, mm -hmm. is that worse than killing him the way that we did here? I wish that there was a definitive scene where... Maybe when Balana was looking at his hollow matrix and he's, she's looking at his data file, maybe towards the end, Balana confessed to the doctor that she was thinking about reprogramming him, but his file was so corrupted mm. that it wouldn't have mattered if they formatted him because he would have eventually just have lost all of his data to be unrecoverable. So she basically said, I, can't, I couldn't do it. Yeah. There's no way for me to save him. Um, there's, a, there's a trope uh, in science fiction, and it's certainly like well played in, in one of my favorite shows where they have a punishment where a criminal is telepathically stripped of who he is and another personality is implanted deep into his psychosis to the point where mm. he'll never remember who he was. He only knows who he is. And they try and make him a more productive member, he or she, a more productive member of society mm -hmm. because they feel like, you know, the destruction of the physical body is based on this particular show is a waste of utility as yeah. opposed to being able to provide the the body, the the, the public 
a way of reinserting this utility back into the system in a more productive manner. But at the same time, though, that's basically a long way of saying zombification. Right. Because it's not that right. person anymore. You yeah. know, you strip him of his who he is and uh, essentially um, stripping him of his rights, stripping of whatever dignity he has, he or she has, I'm using this universally, and reducing their personality to nothing more than a memory file. And yeah. is that the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do? So I like that we're talking about the Jaren, like the doctor. What if the doctor never had the opportunity of friendship, leadership, love, yeah. support? Or what if the Jaren actually had that or was offered that in his new programming if he was able to be saved and it, yeah is it ethically right to then go back into Dejarin's programming and say like oh okay all of this stuff we uh, separate from this holographic creation we have determined that all of these traits are the wrong traits so we're going to remove those and now you will just go back into your role as the maintenance guy the cleanup crew whatever it is that we programmed you originally to do and that is the only way that you will be at acceptable well how much autonomy how much do we believe that he is a being by as a doctor puts it you know outgrowing his programming being more than the sum of his parts yeah and i think that this is where again heavily um evenly weighted a plot b plot you really need to focus on one and then if we made a little bit of a more of a sympathetic you know uh a sympathetic cause for Dejarn to be saved with some of that extra time mm-hmm. focusing on the A plot, it would have made it a lot easier for us to say like, nope, they had to go this way. Yeah. It's unfortunate, but instead we react to it as like, yep, he really need to be eliminated because this, this is just a bad entity, yeah. you know, and there's no saving him. But that's the thing is like, you feel like you haven't really been satisfied. That's not a very Star Trek message, though. I'll get to that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll get to that. <laughs> this is a bad entity that can't be saved. All right, well, it, let's move on from Dejaran because I, I feel like whew, there's a lot to unpack here with Seven of Nine and Harry Kim. And I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater because I think that there, there are very good elements here to their interactions. And I think that there are good growth moments for Seven. But we have to address what else is going on here. And, and I'm not really convinced that we can do it justice here. I, I feel like there are a whole other podcast that would probably do a much deeper and better job than you and I could. And, and look, I, I say all of that with the, the grain of salt. You have to understand that these moments probably hit different in 1997 than they do now. And even in context, there are still some issues that, that we have to deal with. I personally don't feel like I can adequately address the issues of sexism as they apply to Seven in this episode. I will say one thing that really disturbs me, though, mm-hmm. that in the real world, outside of Star Trek Voyager, the the TV show, it, it became this like running joke about how Harry Kim is so lame that he turned down a sexual offer from Seven. And that that joke of it, joking of it, is meant to belittle Harry. But let me also say that it absolutely demeans Seven in the process. Right. For everyone who tries to make this a joke at Harry's expense, it is equally disturbing to me that it would just be okay or in any way right to have this situation play out for Seven 
No, 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 no. She does not know what she's offering. There is no context here that's good for her emotional growth. And it really bugs the hell out of me that plenty of people just look at the joke as, oh, wow, Harry, you screwed up. You should have taken advantage of her. And that doesn't even scratch the surface of what we're putting Harry through in this episode. <laughs> it just mm -hmm. uh, So I, I've got some real problems with this. And by the way, Okay, th that was a few seconds of me being very high and mighty and preachy here from the safety behind this microphone. Let me say, for the record, that the first time I saw this episode in a Voyager rewatch, I don't think I saw it when it originally aired, October of 97. I, I, I saw this a few years later in a watch through of the whole series. I laughed. I laughed at those scenes and I laughed at the awkwardness of the moments, right? And I think that's what the mm -hmm. intention was supposed to be. But in retrospect, I think it is full of problems. And yeah, I'll step off this soapbox now. No, I mean, you're not wrong. I mean, the thing is, your analogy of, you know, Harry and the story arc of his dragging Seven down with him, it's just the opposite of that, you know, phrase, a rising tide lifts all boats. Well, mm -hmm. it's, this is what's happening to these two characters at this particular time. Now, I, I do have a different take on it. Okay. And I have mentioned this before as an Asian man watching Garrett, an Asian actor, playing an Asian officer in a future that's supposed to spotlight humanity in a better way. Yeah. And I'm talking about Asian men in general, not any one specific you know, uh, race or mm -hmm. cultural background. Mm -hmm. But in general, and definitely from my experience, and to be honest with you, from me personally, mm. there are certain things that Lisa writes for Harry that are, for me, completely dead on right mm. in this in this episode. Mm -hmm. His awkwardness at closeness. There mm -hmm. are scenes where they block both Jerry and Garrett so close together that you're anticipating something to happen. Yeah. For Asian men, that is extremely unnerving. We are not a touchy-feely personality in general. Mm. We do not like our space encroached upon because we believe that certain advances are being made once that personal space has been encroached upon. Mm. And maybe that's where Harry's coming from. Also, Harry is... And I have described him before as a certain personality in Asian culture that's known as the people pleaser slash model minority. We go along to get along. And if yeah. certain benefits may or may not happen during the course of trying to please people and we read those signals the wrong way, it's just because we're not comfortable with the situation. So we're reacting to it as what we believe is happening, not necessarily what is actually happening. Because we want to make sure that everyone is happy and they walk away from every situation as if we have done our very best to make them happy. And maybe this is the, the signal that Harry was reading wrong. Mm. But here's my problem with the people-pleasing aspect of Harry's character. And I, and I want to bring this quote up. It's when they first, when Harry and Seven had their first line of dialogue together. Harry says, I thought we'd start in Jeffrey 2B, enhance the astrometric <laughs> sensors, if that's okay with you. Unless it's a bad time, maybe I can come back later. And then Seven says, Ensign Kim, you seem apprehensive, very astute of her. Uh -huh. And Kim says, no, not at all. And then Seven says, the last time we worked together, I struck you at the base of your skull and attempted to contact the collective. And then Harry says, these things happen. Mm. Using phrases like, I can come back later, 
or these things happen, or if it's a bad time, hmm. he's already apologizing to her up front before anything happens, just in case he does something offensive. Huh. Yeah. So it's like, I'm in charge. I am an ensign. Tahir, if you want a promotion to be a higher officer, act you, like an you gotta officer. You've got to be a leader, yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, like, act for the role that you're dressed for. You know, yeah. you have the pip. As far as we're concerned, Seven is just a member of the crew and not even a ranked member of the crew. So he should walk in there saying, I need you to help me with this. Yeah. Instead, he wants to make sure that whatever happens during the course of their exercise together, this project, it's not he who's going to feel better about himself. It is she who's going to feel better about herself. Mm. Right? So in I read this article from Psychology Today. Uh-huh. And the people pleaser have or may have traits that include, and let me know if you haven't heard these before, according to <laughs> Harry or in regarding Harry, accommodates everyone else's needs, uh-huh. does not assert themselves, uh-huh. feels valuable when complying with others, values praise from others. Here's the, here's the kicker, John, and in this entire part of this story, yeah. has little self-awareness. Oof, yeah, that's, right? that's the one. Yeah. So these are, these are just, this is a laundry list of uh, descriptions. And I just chose these as they applied to Harry. Yeah. But think about it this way in the overall fandom of Star Trek in context to Gene's vision. Let's look at Sulu as the, the litmus test, as the watermark of Mm. an Asian character in Star Trek. Look at how radical those two different personalities are. And even though they're supposed to be part of this more evolved societal humanity, this is the Starfleet officer a hundred years after Sulu. The confidence level is not there. The authoritativeness, the assertiveness, the confidence, not there. But look at where like the example, the best example of Gene's vision starts. It starts with Sulu. Yeah. But for a male Asian character of any of like, of any stripe in terms of, you know, the longevity of the series. Cause I can't really talk about uh, discovery, you know, with Reese there. Mm-hmm. Cause he's only there for like a handful of seconds. Right. Garrett's the last one. Yeah. <laughs> right. He's yeah. the last of the Asian male officers really on TV. And this is how they're writing him. Was justice truly served in this episode or should Dutch Aaron have been sentenced to serve the rest of his runtime in club pro Well, we've made it to the end of revulsion. I don't think that we have revolted against the episode. I don't think that we've been in complete support of it. But that's what we do here at Mission Log. When we get to the end, we take a look at all of our discussion and our all of our analysis and ask these very fundamental questions that we have done since the beginning of Mission Log. Does the episode hold up? Does it withstand the test of time? And did we find any morals, meanings, or messages contained therein and let's start off with mr champion who i hope is not revolted uh i'm not completely revulsed by this no no no. i think uh you mentioned it earlier in the podcast and that is the makeup on dejaran it's so strange and lackluster i mean look this is a role where it is all about the performance 
but there are so many places that you're watching this and the makeup just looks incomplete and it fades off and why does he look entirely human the aliens the the organic and isomorphic here just look human and that's okay we've seen that before on voyager and other star treks for that matter but if we only got one of those for the whole show why not just do something to make him a little bit different i i, I don't know what it should be and again, I know that we need to focus on the performance here and not on the look, but I felt like it was an odd choice. And you can just tell, you can just see that makeup fading off. Do you think that's a, a side effect of the four day shooting schedule he had before he had to go do Saving Private Ryan? Could be, but I also feel like if you're going to commit to something, just commit to it. So if you're going to do that kind of pale, goldish, quasi-metallic makeup like they did on Data, j- mm-hmm. just go for it. Just do yeah. it all the way down to the chest and make sure it's on, on, on the arms and everything so we know that that is the look. It, it was a strange choice. I also I, I wondered about this, and th- then I think I came to the conclusion that they really did do the right thing here. I wondered if they had toyed with the idea of not revealing him as the murderer right away. Because, I mean, think about it. We start in the teaser. He's the guy cleaning up the blood. He is suspicious. And if that isn't enough for you, when the EMH and Bellana beam in, he's ready to kill him with a hammer. Right? So we know as the audience more than what the characters in the show know. Which usually you don't do in a murder mystery type thing. And... I think in one way to tell the story that could have been effective in this Norman Bates kind of way where he has some sympathy for him and you don't really know where he's coming from. But then I thought better of it. That would have made this episode turn into a whodunit with a potentially very unsatisfying reveal because you're just trying to get to that point. See also ex post facto. (laughs) <laughs> Were you just trying to just trying to steam right ahead and go like, oh, that's the murderer. And then either that'll land with you or it won't. And then you forget the episode. But this way, we got to spend our time trying to get into Dejarin's isomorphic head and still trying to anticipate how bad things would go for the Doctor and Balana. So I think that was a good choice here to tell the kind of story that we're trying to tell and allow us to play in that psychological space with both Dejarin and, for that matter, Seven, and figure out what's going on with these different characters. So does it hold up? Well, yes and no. In the yes column, you've got a really intriguing premise that actually gets into the why of this artificial life form's feelings and lets us relate them to another one who we love, meaning the Doctor. And you've also got some attempts at character growth and continuity with our regular cast, too. All of those are good in my book. And again, uh, there are some truly intense and tension-building scenes here. So, Ken Biller, good job on your first outing as a director. But... But but in the no column, we have some real problems with this episode. Look, the performances are good all around. We've also got what could have or would have been an interesting story with Harry being able to step up here and be a good and decent person, not by shunning Seven's proposal, but by actually having a growth moment and not acting like a bumbling teenager. He should be the one to take the agency here, and he certainly should not be the one who is now the butt of a joke among the rest of the crew, and that is what infuriates me 
the most. I, I feel like this is an episode that holds up because you have a really strong premise, you have some strong character moments, and then if I think too hard about it, those interactions with Harry and Seven of Nine undermine the strength of the episode. And that's too bad because mm-hmm. I, I want this to tick all the boxes and to say, yes, this holds up. In fact, this holds up in a very compelling way about holographic life form and about just life on Voyager between fellow crew members. But when you strip away the opportunity, the very opportunity of Harry to be the better person here and just make him kind of pathetic in the process and treat Seven like this, well, I hate to say it, like this object in that that sort of uh, manipulation of Harry's character, it really hurts it. I want to love this, and I just don't think that I can get there. I'm with you. On, I'm on many of the same pages that you are on. As a matter of fact, I forgot to bring up something in discussion that also adds to the issues that we have with the way that Seven is portrayed in this episode. And it's a very... Uh, it, it, it harkens back to how Billy Wilder shot Marilyn Monroe in The Seven-Year Itch. Never once mm. in that movie, and this is back in the 1950s, um, never once in that movie did Billy Wilder shoot her, shoot Marilyn Monroe's character as a full woman. It's always a mm. shot of Marilyn Monroe in a very compromising position that, and forgive my crassness, but I just want to explain the theory of this. It, it shot Marilyn Monroe in a way where it accentuated who physically she was known for as an actor. So she yeah. was always leaning out of a window or walking up a staircase. It was, it was the, the man, the male protagonist's view of what this woman looks like in his mind's eye, as opposed to seeing her for a full woman. That's the way that seven was shot early in this episode. Yeah. He either had a close-up of Jerry Ryan's gorgeous face, which made yeah. Harry very uncomfortable. And then yeah. you had her either walking up or climbing up a Jeffrey's tube yeah. or climbing down. Yeah. And it, and it framed her in a very specific way that was, again, reminiscent of the theory that Billy Wilder had about sensualizing and sexualizing a woman, in this case, Jerry Ryan. And in the seven-year itch, it was Marilyn Monroe. So I thought that was interesting. By the way, as you're saying all of this, I'm, I'm thinking of something that I want to get out there as kind of a disclaimer or a counterpoint because we will hear from people with all different perspectives on our perspective on this episode. And I want to make this very clear. I do not think that we should desexualize Star Trek or desexualize the characters. I think that uh, for a show that has run at current count more than 900 hours of programming with dozens and dozens of characters whose lives we have followed, I think there is room for some exploration of adult themes and relationships and ideas. And, Mm -hmm. and certainly this was on the table for Gene when he was creating Star Trek, when he was alive. But I think this is the wrong way to do it. And it's not to say that you can't explore the intimate lives of members of the Voyager crew, but please, my goodness, don't allow Harry to just become the butt of the joke because he couldn't, be an adult for a second and step up and say, you know what, this is wrong and here's why. 
And here's why I'm not going to do this, because I'm going to show a moment of respect here. But instead, it, it turned into this joking thing. And, and, and again, Seven is a bit of a special case because she is conventionally beautiful. That much is for sure. But at the same time, we're also having to be very careful with the fact that she is newly human after being Borg for the majority of her life. And everybody, everybody on the crew knows, like, hey, th this is a special situation. And we need to allow and nurture the growth of this human being here and not just make this like, oh, here's where Harry screwed up. Right. That, that just plays in such a crass disgusting way yeah so, it yeah it doesn't add anything again to the the quality of their characters it really does you know yeah it's very detrimental to both of their development and especially sevens earlier on but again like most of the points uh that that you stated i completely agree with i just want to add a couple of other points yeah, of my own yeah. so we not too long ago were on a uh in a conversation about uh about the jarin and i was telling you that i remember watching this in my first run and I just really didn't care for the character. I found it very just forgettable, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. And what I love about doing Mission Log is I love being able to watch and rewatch and analyze and reanalyze certain things. And in this case, I really did find Leland to be an incredibly nuanced actor. And this, I think this performance oh, was amazing in this episode. Uh, that, that's a complete 180. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Good and I for you, think man. it was the yeah. uh, I think it was the interchange where he was he was screaming at the doctor's like, no, we are superior. I am yeah. not going back to being inferior. We are superior. And then all the little almost the 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 bubbling up of this eruption that was almost happening at every scene, like he just couldn't contain himself. Like when he went on that rant yeah. with Bellana earlier on to the rant that he had with Bellana at the end, he was just a traumatic and tortured character. And what I feel was fascinating about that and how it changed my mind was thinking about if we believe this narrative of Star Trek actually exists, how many other Dejarns are out there? How many more of these mm. holographic life forms are out there that have been abused, that don't have the ability to be able to evolve in that way that the doctor has evolved? You yeah. know, because bring up, uh, to bring up an example, think about the replicants in Blade Runner. They were created yeah. for specific reasons. I mean, Roy Batty was created as a soldier. Pris was created as a pleasure model, right? Yeah. So um, Leon was created as a forced labor worker. None of them yeah. have rights, just like Dejarin. He doesn't have any rights. He's just property. But what happens when these programs push back? Yeah. Right? And I found that fascinating in his portrayal of the character. I'm completely on board with you about Harry and Seven. It was, it's not quite there, you know? And I don't yeah. know if it has damaged the characters in the way that we think it has. But at the same time, though, and I hate saying this in the way that it sounds, but it's so 90s the way that it was written with this yeah. forced, awkward sexuality that's very tongue-in-cheek, the way that Chakotay played it off at the end. He may as well, Beltran may as well have just looked at the, broke the fourth wall, looked at the camera and winked like, we know what you did, mm -hmm. Harry, yep. right? Yep. You know, yep. we're guys, we can talk about that, can we? Yeah. Can't, we can't, that means you failed. You didn't, you know, you didn't seal the deal, bro, right? That was, 
just the over-the-top coarseness that was missing from that scene, yeah. but it was implied, yeah. right? It was implied. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, that that hurts this episode in a really serious way, and it's too bad. And um, oh, but I, I forgot I also, to say if, if it's a if oh, this, yeah. this holds up or not. The one last positive point that I want to bring. Oh yeah, you, but yeah, continue. yeah, please. I think that when the when I mentioned if the programs push back, so I think the question alone for this makes this episode a story that holds up for me, especially today where AI is headed. Mm. Okay, so it's mm-hmm. kind of a cautionary tale. And it's a social and cultural warning through the lens of science fiction, told through the lens of science fiction, which is very Star Trek. Unfortunately, it doesn't balance out that way with the scales on the end because the B story or the other story is so uh, it's just so unsatisfying. I think there's a way to do it. I, I think you can play awkwardness. I think you can play this, you know, a flirtation. You you can play all of these things. Not here, not the way it was done. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> you know? Agreed. Um, and, and it's too bad because we are now four seasons into it. And we've just kind of constantly put Harry in that place. It, it, it's really too bad because I want to see some growth out of him. Uh, but as far as messages, well, uh, oh boy. Um, <laughs> you know, on the positive side of things, I, I think we, we chalk up the Doctor and Bolana side of story as, well, okay, maybe they're a little less cautious than they should be, maybe a little too trusting, but I really appreciate how they go into their situation without judgment or prejudice. It is exciting to meet a new artificial life form and give him the benefit of the doubt. And I love the way that this episode explores empathy with that life form. Now, we as an audience should be asking ourselves what makes Dejarin into who he is, versus what makes the doctor into who he is. Mm -hmm. That is like measure of a man, in fact, and in that it is our treatment of others that is on trial here. So love having those parallels. And look, I I don't want to beat this drum again, but as for Harry and Seven, there's just so much to unpack there. And all I can really say is that you have to start from a place of respect and genuine care and concern and friendship for the people around you. I hate seeing Harry trip over himself when he could just be professional and be an adult about all of this. Even more so, I hate seeing his fellow crew members make it a joke. Don't do that, people. Ever. Please. Yeah. Even Tom brought it up when they were in sickbay. He's like, wasn't your last failed attempt at having a girlfriend a hologram? Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, it's just... Yeah. This is is a pattern that really needs to be broken, and hopefully soon. So I'm glad you brought up Measure of Man, because, you know, that's kind of the episode that was forefront on my mind when I was watching this. And I was wondering if this is kind of like this strange book ending to Measure of a Man, (laughs) at least for at this point in time. I mean, really have to ask ourselves... Is this is what happened to Dejarin? Is this what would have happened to Data if Maddox had won the case? If he oh. had his way? Snap! Yeah. Right? Okay. So, and I want to I want to remind everyone. I want to go through this this section of dialogue because it's really interesting how they weaved that into this episode. So, for Measure of a Man, at the very end, Picard says, "Commander Data." What are you doing now? And Data responds, I am taking part in a legal hearing to determine my rights and status. Am I a person or property? 
Picard says, and what's at stake? And Data says, my right to choose, perhaps my very life. Picard says, my rights, my status, my right to choose, my life. It seems reasonably self-aware to me, Commander. I'm waiting. Hmm. Now, this is what the doctor said to Jajaran when they first met. The doctor said, when I was first activated, I was guarded as little more than a talking tricorder. I had to ask for the privileges I deserved, the right to be included in crew briefings, the ability to turn my program on and off. It's taken some time, but I believe I've earned the respect of the crew as an equal. So these words deserve rights, ability, respect. These are all part of having individuality of having agency over oneself and one's existence. Now, if we're to believe that Gene Roddenberry's future is about equality and inclusion, then this episode does propose that all life forms are to be afforded every opportunity to grow and evolve, whether biological or artificial. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you'd like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com, and for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, The Raven. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, Tom Kozak, Julie Miller, Mike Richards, Mike Shadwell, Paul Shadwell, and David Takechi. If the holographic fish had a mobile emitter, would it need to be a tiny emitter, or a really big fish? transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.